0: Good morning, Hallows Church. Welcome to another virtual worship gathering. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is a delight to be with you this morning. And if you're new here, this is your first time, uh, welcome, welcome, thanks for joining us. If you guys wanna open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're gonna be looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. So last week, our message was Peter's address to the, to the church about submitting to authorities, and it was timely for us. It was a good, a good passage for us to just reset our minds on who our ultimate allegiance is to and help us reframe how we are to live out honorable lives, how to live an honorable conduct around others in both our words and our actions, Right? But this week's passage is the second half of that, and where Peter is going to address and begin to apply those principles to individual lives in the church, to an individual group of people in the church. So think about it like this, that if last week was this announcement to the church Now he's turning to individuals and he's saying, okay, and this is what you need to do in your life, right? This is what the call that you need to make in your personal life. And who he calls first reveals everything about us and our Savior. Peter basically says that if you thought that this wasn't going to get personal, you better think again. Jesus is not interested in a superficial faith. Jesus wants every area of your life to be a reflection of his grace. And in that process, he's gonna show you the purpose of that suffering and how he's making you more like himself. Because at the center of suffering, we find the heartbeat of the gospel. There we discover the difference that Jesus makes when we steady our minds, we settle our hearts, and we soften our souls to live out the gospel in every circumstance, even the most challenging ones. So that way you pray with me real quick. Father, give us a clarity of mind. Help us steady our minds on the truth of your word. Father, would you help settle our hearts on the reality of the gospel and soften our souls to discover all that the difference that Jesus makes. Would you help us with that? Would you help us see that and apply that to our lives? We love you in Christ's precious name, amen. And so so as we begin, first, what I'm sure that you've noticed is, um, I'm sure you've noticed the word slave, slave in there. If you're just looking at this without really paying any attention to it, there's going to be some, some surprising words that we need to clarify because we do not want to impose our historical experience on the New Testament. We do not want to do that. If you have your ESV translation, household slave is going to be servant. It's going to be servant instead. But they basically mean the same thing. Someone who was owned by another, someone who was a slave who served another who had a master, right? Now, they mean the same thing. However, there are major differences when we think about our United States history of slaves and slave owners compared to Greco-Roman slaves and their slave owners and their masters, right? We don't want to impose our historical experience on the New Testament because if we do that, it changes the way that we see it, and it really entirely changes the uh, the context of the passage and what it's trying to say to us. So first, when we think of slaves, when we see slaves in the New Testament— we are thinking of Greco-Roman slaves, who were different, and, or who were different than um, the slaves that we know in our history, because this type of slavery was not based on race and the demoralization of a person. It was a particular group of people in society. To some, it was people who faced economic hardship that in getting out of that was to serve as someone's slave to pay off a debt. But there are many other different reasons. And this is, at this time, this is kind of a melting pot of different groups of people serving as slaves, different races, different people serving as as slaves. And um, others others became slaves through casualties of war who were brought into slavery by maybe being born into a slave household. Right? But the another difference is that many of them were highly educated. So they were highly educated. Some served as doctors, as teachers, as managers, musicians, artists. And it was not uncommon for a slave in the Greco-Roman era to be more educated than even their master. Now, slavery in Greco-Roman context was still bad. So I don't want you to hear that what I'm saying is because there's differences, one's good and one's bad. They're all bad. It's all bad. It's all bad, but it's different. So in no way is scripture justifying slavery. In no way is scripture justifying slavery. Like the United States history of slavery, these were a group of people who did not have an individual freedom and their socioeconomic status was beyond their control. But when we read this passage, a more accurate comparison to our context is not the U.S. Uh, United States historical slavery that we know. A more accurate comparison of this context would be an employee to an employer who is abusive towards them. This would be, this context is better compared in our time to an employee who has an abusive boss. See, Peter is getting personal though here in applying submission and honorable conduct to Christian slaves who have masters who are mistreating them. Paul talks about slaves and masters in other parts of the New Testament But in those contexts, he's usually referring to Christian masters to those Christian slaves as saying, treating them like brothers. This is an environment here where we have a circumstance of a believing slave and an unbelieving master who's treating them unjustly. So what does Peter tell them, right? He says, you are to live in submission and to honor and live in an honorable conduct. And they ask, I'm sure, well, how on earth am I supposed to do that? How on earth am I supposed to do that? And that's exactly why we need this passage because who he speaks to reveals us and reveals our savior. Because I have a question for you. Is there an area in your life that's causing suffering but you've just accepted it as the norm. Perhaps you think it doesn't apply to your faith and that Jesus doesn't speak into that. You say, yes, I know that Jesus the difference that Jesus makes there. But what about here? I'm not sure I, I know where he's speaking in, in here because this is an area that's bringing more pain. It's bringing a more suffering than I care to admit. And if we all just go about our business, then it just business as usual, then I'm not gonna have to deal with that. I'm not gonna have to, to go there with him. And that's the position that we find these slaves in. We find these slaves, they love the church, they love talking about Jesus, but they would just rather not talk about the thing that's causing them the most suffering, the mistreatment from their masters, the perpetual injustice they find themselves in. I know all the difference that Jesus makes there, but what about here? So First Peter tells us, to steady our minds on the truth of God's word. Let's read verse 18 through 20. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. So why does some suffering bring favor? And what kind of suffering is that? What we need to do is we need to have an an understanding of this kind of suffering and what the Bible tells us about suffering and a believer's response to it. So first, if we're looking at Scripture, if we're looking at all of Scripture together, we're going to find multiple different types of suffering. First, we're going to find explicable suffering. And explicable suffering is what we find in Proverbs, what we find in wisdom literature. It's don't do X because X will cause suffering, right? Don't do this because this will cause that. So avoid this so that you don't have suffering, right? Very very explainable, explicable suffering. But then there's inexplicable suffering. That's doing what you should be doing, and yet you suffer from unexplained circumstances. From unexplained circumstances, right? We find examples in Job, we find examples in Jeremiah, where they're looking out, and they're looking at the suffering that's causing to them, and they're wondering, why? Why? What's happening? And within that, within that is a deeper form of suffering, and that's purposeful suffering. Purposeful suffering is what we find in Jesus. Purposeful suffering is what we find as believers live out the gospel. And that's God revealing himself within that circumstance to draw you out of that circumstance and draw you closer to him, bringing you endurance and stability in that suffering. It's as if the suffering, you see the greater purpose within it, you're drawn out of it, and in that process, you're looking more like Christ. It's amazing, and there's a purpose to it. We see, we see reflections of this in Psalm 119, Hebrews 12, Acts 15, all passages that are looking at purposeful suffering through the context of affliction, through hostility, through hardships, all, all different circumstances. And But within this is this greater, deeper purpose that, that God is bringing and, and bringing that person involved in to where they see it from in a different way. But one area in all suffering that we see in Scripture is that God never leaves his children to fend for themselves. God never leaves his children alone. just like these slaves weren't. And just like we aren't. God is quick to bring grace. And stability when a, when a disciple sets their minds on Christ in suffering. By submitting to these masters that act cruelly to them, these, these slaves, they, they're displaying Christ. They're displaying Christ. They have a call to be a gospel witness. And they see of all of the church that they are uniquely fit to display the riches of God's glory through grace in the midst of unjust cruelty. The beauty of Jesus Christ is displayed when grace is the response of injustice and suffering. Let me say that one more time. The beauty of Jesus Christ is displayed when grace is the response of injustice and suffering. But how do we even begin to do that? I wonder if that might even be your question. How do we even begin to do that? We steady our minds on his word. We steady our minds on the truths of God's word. Verse 19, it brings favor is because of a consciousness of God. Your Bible, it might say they're being mindful of God right this is the practice of setting our minds outside of our circumstance and into the stability of God's purpose of God's purpose psalm 119 verses 25 through 27 expresses this when it says my life is down in the dust give me life through your word i told you about my life and you answered me teach me your statutes Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. John Bunyan, an English, uh, an English Puritan, he was imprisoned for 12 years, for 12 years for preaching the gospel. And yet in his imprisonment, he came out looking more like Jesus and displaying the gospel to everyone around him than when he came in. Why? Because his endurance and stability were found in the purposes of Christ in the midst of suffering. Because of moments in moments of cruelty, he would steady his mind on God's word, rather than thinking about anything, any of the other external circumstances. And this is, this is what he says in a poem. He writes this. He says, "I am indeed in prison now, in body, but my mind." is free to study Christ and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by faith of Christ, I can mount higher than the stars. That's beautiful. That is steadying the mind on Christ and purposeful suffering. Because Let's be honest, suffering drives us to feel more alone and isolated than we really care to admit. That's why so many of us are are struggling now more than ever, because it's not like we didn't have issues before we self-quarantined, before we went into self-isolation, right? But it's now I have to physically isolate myself and... By physically isolating myself from community, I'm spiritually, I have the tendency, excuse me, to spiritually remove myself from the community, thereby removing myself from God. Right? It's a lot easier to not read your Bible, to not steady your mind on God's word when there's no one else around. It's easier to feel, to become more isolated. And spiritually isolate yourself, particularly when you're going through a difficult time, particularly when you're going through moments of suffering. Don't do that. Draw into Christ. Steady your mind on his word. Because then you do not see, you you will see the greater purpose of this circumstance, but it's also going to bring you communion with Christ gonna bring you that deeper community. And also another part is that that's exactly where Satan wants you to be, by the way. He does not want you to feel like you have a welcomed community. He wants you to feel alone. He wants you to feel like you are the only person going through what you're going through. And that's not true. Even as unique as your circumstance might be, your suffering is can be you can see the greater purpose in that when you have others helping you, when you have communion with Christ. Because there in the depth of that, we are drawn by the Spirit to steady our minds on who Jesus, who says, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The favor of God is to steady our minds on the truth of God's word. And he supernaturally lifts us out of our burdens and we find ourselves resting in the company of Jesus. But church, you know as well as I that steadying our minds on Christ can be very difficult to do alone. That can be a really difficult thing to do. So there's a second application to this of don't just steady your mind on Christ. Church, sometimes Jesus meets us there, but other times he sends his people to be the hands and feet of those suffering to bring comfort to them and to help lift them out of their burden so that they can see the uh, different perspectives, so they can see the greater purpose of this. I remember a time when Amy um, was pregnant with Elliot, Early into the pregnancy, we found ourselves at the hospital uh, with a possible miscarriage. Both of us had just arrived on Guam. We were—we didn't know that many people. We were just introduced to this new church. Our, our church family, the Hallows, in fact, was back in Seattle, far away. And it was midnight, and we just found ourselves feeling helpless in a hospital I didn't recognize. Not knowing where to, to bring Amy, where to, what doctors to put uh, to, to, to help her with. And I just remember sitting there and asking God, "Let me know you're here. Just help me know that you're with me, because I do not know what to do. And comfort came, but not as I expected. Because a friend from this new church, I'm still meeting people in, he called. He called and encouraged me. And he pressed into our time of suffering to help bring me out and to see a different purpose, to see how close to Christ I still was. He steadied my mind on the promises of God, but he did it in two ways church. He did it in two ways. This is what he did. First, he encouraged me. But second, he gave me an actionable solution. He helped me in my time of need. He said, listen, Mark, there's a better hospital that you can receive, faster care, and I can get you there. Because he was a doctor at that at that hospital. And he said, don't go here. I'm going to make calls and he made all of these calls in the middle of the night to have us drive right in and see a doctor and get cared for right away. Actionable solutions and encouragement at the same time. It's amazing. It's amazing. I still remember it. Word and deed he encouraged me, even if it brought inconvenience to himself. We are so quick to encourage But are we quick to be inconvenienced for the sake of another? Are we quick to be inconvenienced for the sake of another? To be used by the Spirit to pull someone out of suffering, to set their mind on Christ and to settle their hearts? Because I assure you, when you are lifted out, supernaturally lifted out, when the spirit is drawing you closer to Christ, not only is your mind steadied on his word, but your heart is settled too. So let's continue into verse 21. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. Now, I love this because I, the word example there, The word example is an educational term. It's an educational term that refers to the faint outlines of letters which were traced over by children learning to write. As a child traces over letters on a page, Christians, our hearts are settled when we trace over the path of Jesus as our example. It reminds me of that uh, song from Kanye West, "Follow God," where in the beginning, before the song starts, this is father kind of father figure kind of speaking, and he's telling the first time that his kids saw snow, and they were fearful because they didn't know how to step in it, and they didn't know how to walk in it. And so he says, "It was so. What I did was that I took steps in front of them, and I told them instead of creating your own footprints." Walk in the footprints that I've already made. Jesus has done that for us. In our moments of suffering, we can remember the example that Jesus gave for us and that Jesus gave to us. Jesus is the outline for us to trace Jesus is the outline, but also, guys, there's another application of this. Church, church, we have the responsibility that if people don't know it, to show that outline to others. Jesus is our example, but we can also come alongside people and help them see the traced outline that's there for them to use. Right? My sons, they're giving these outlines all the time at school. And Sometimes when they finish, they discover that they've written a word. But other times it takes me helping them along the way to discover the word that's about to be formed. Right? You have a Savior who has set the example for you to settle your hearts so that you don't have to have all of the answers, that you can be fearful. As long as you remember that there's no fear in Christ, that he's called you to another purpose, to see the external circumstances, steady your mind, settle your heart on him, follow in his example. And church, we can help other people see that. We can help people see that who aren't seeing it right away. But The question is, what is Jesus' example? And this is where it gets so, so applicational. It says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. This is verse 22 through 23. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now, what Peter's referring to here is two experiences. First, he's, first he's, he's referring to Isaiah 53, which we're gonna get back to in a minute. But right here, commentators all agree that this had to have been the hardest sentence for Peter to write. Because what he's referring back to is his own personal experience of seeing Jesus respond in these ways as he was arrested, as he was tortured, as he was crucified. So to him, he's seen Isaiah 53. He's seen what Isaiah 53 is doing, but he's also remembering his own experience, and he's remembering how Jesus was treated and how he responded. Charles Spurgeon, he says, which hour do you think when Jesus was suffered from Gethsemane to Golgotha would have been the most impressed on Peter's memory. Surely it was that space of time when he was mocked and beaten repeatedly in the hall of the high priest while Peter sat and warmed his hands by the fire. And when he saw the Lord abused and was afraid to own that he was a disciple and by and by became so terrified that with profane language he declared, I know not the man. The sinlessness of Jesus in the midst of unjust cruelty displayed Peter's sinfulness and brought him into repentance. This is the example that Jesus gives us. This is a countercultural kind of example. When Jesus suffered, there was no sin in him, no deceit, When he was insulted, he didn't swear back. When he was mocked, he didn't threaten. When he was subjected, when he subjected himself to suffering, he did so in submission to the Father in order for the lost to be forgiven. When someone curses at you, mistreats you, attacks your character, instead of revenge, Instead of resentment, choose Christ. Choose Christ. Settle your heart in His. That action is the response that brings people to repentance. That's a difference Jesus makes. People say, Yeah, I thought you were going to respond this way. But you don't. You say, No, Christ is in me. This is my response. Instead, going back to verse 21, an even deeper thing, looking directly at you. It says, you were called to this. Verse 21, you were called to this. God chose you. God chose you to respond to injustice supernaturally, to choose Christ. But again, friends, there's another side to this church. Yes, you are called to choose Christ in your response towards injustice, because only through him will your heart be settled. No sinful action in as a response to another will bring you satisfaction. But do not forget, church, that there are actionable solutions we can also take. Ros- uh, Rosaria Butterfield, she once described a time when a woman came to her house and she came to her house because she had just been sexually assaulted. And this woman was seeking prayer and encouragement for this. What was Rosaria Butterfield's response? It was perfect. She said, yes, we prayed, but first we called the police. First we called the police because settling the heart and choosing Christ is not to excuse or neglect an actionable response to suffering. Let me say that one more time. Settling the heart and choosing Christ is not to excuse or neglect an actionable response to suffering. But Let's go back now to Isaiah 53 and let's look at that picture. The hinge passage of the Old Testament and the New Testament is Isaiah 53. It's looking at the 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 Messiah, the coming Messiah, who's going to fulfill the law of the Old Testament while perfectly describing Jesus, the Messiah, perfectly describing him and his death and his resurrection. And if you hold up Peter's letter to a church filled with sufferers enduring unjust cruelty, what is read to them is Isaiah fifty three. Because the center of the entire Bible and the is the and the very heartbeat of the gospel is that Christ took on the very depths of your sins, who knew no sin, and died on the cross for you. And it is in that reality that Jesus draws us near and he says, I will not forsake you. I will not leave you alone. I have put sin to death so that you may live. This is the nature of Jesus. This is the reality of the gospel that the entire Bible points to. Our shepherd, when we were lost in our sins, Jesus sought us and carried us back into the fold of God, carried us back to the fold of God and it is in that reality is in that reality that the believer the believer's soul is softened to the gospel and in that reality the action of it by the believer choosing Christ over sinful actions is what softens the soul of the lost and brings them to repentance in Christ. Let's read verse 24. Verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, this is the interesting part about this. is in Isaiah. It says, by his wounds, I think it says, we have been healed. But Peter wants to be, abundantly clear here that he's speaking to these people who are suffering, where he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Remember who you are. At the center of suffering is the Savior who cannot be restrained when he sees his people lost in sin. Jesus was forsaken, so we wouldn't be. Jesus was left alone in his grief, so you wouldn't. The Father's face was hidden from him, so he would never hide his face from you. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus is softening our souls, and when in our grief and in the raw pain of suffering, when the gospel was there and now it's here, we begin to see that we too were lost. We begin to see that we too were lost and by God's grace, he has rescued us. Verse 25, he says, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is the power of Jesus in that suffering that we have a greater intimacy of the grace of Jesus that he gives us because we remember that we too were lost in sin. A purposeful suffering pulling us out to see how we can be a gospel witness because we too remember that we once were also lost. And he softens our soul. He softens our soul by reminding us that he is the rejoicing shepherd who suffered in our place, for our sake, so that we might live. So church, believe that Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus makes all the difference. At the center of suffering, we find the heart of Jesus beating towards us in our grief as the one who knows the pain and who alone can pull us out of it. This brings us a greater clarity, stability, endurance in our faith to take on any circumstance. Because though this circumstance may external, externally be unexplained and may be difficult for me, my internal, eternal security is always found in Christ. It's always found in Christ. He is not interested in a superficial Christianity. That this Christianity, this relationship with Jesus is the gospel that goes to the center of suffering. And church, we follow Christ in walking with the vulnerable. We follow Christ by going to going there, by going there with people so that. We The healing that we found, they can find as well. Steady the mind, settle the heart, soften the soul to find strength in Jesus. Choose Christ. And that's when we will see the difference that Jesus makes in all of our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him being the example that we need. We pray, God, that as we live out our lives, there would be no area that your grace has not touched, that there would be no area that we are keeping back saying, yes, you are moving here, but you're not able to move there. I pray, God, that you would... Give us this reality of the depth of what Jesus calls to by steadying our minds, settling our hearts, and softening our souls on him alone who has saved us so that we might be a gospel witness to those who have not yet been saved and they too would be drawn in and called to repentance. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.